Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I'm joined by Judy Ford from Gothard Row, which is a landlord services company and Julie, welcome. And could you please give us a bit of background about what it is that Gothard Row does and how you came to be there? Okay, fair enough. Thanks for having me on, Rod. It's really good to be here. And hello, everyone. And hopefully the information I'm going to be giving you will be of some use to you today. So I've got 25 years experience in the property industry myself, started out in property management many years ago, moved into new build sales, and then out the other side into residential lettings. I then moved over to the dark side and worked for Citizens Advice and a homeless charity for about six years. And then I set up my own company, Gothard Row, which now helps landlords who have difficult tenants. Now, whether that's antisocial behavior or more so now with COVID, tenants that have got rent arrears. So I support landlords to then support the tenants in getting grants and funding to pay off those rent arrears. So we don't have to be going through the longevity of court and obviously how much court is costing at the moment as well. Your phone's going to be ringing off the hook because (laughs) I can imagine how much you must be in demand right now not just from the antisocial stuff I think just before we click record I was explaining that just yesterday I was receiving emails from tenants that I guess because everyone's been stuck inside so long everyone's fed up everyone's a bit snappy at each other problems are starting not just between landlords and tenants but tenants and tenants and I guess that's where the antisocial side comes in but also then kind of going to the landlord and payments where people can't pay and information about grants is fantastic so I guess we'll get on to a a bit more info on that and on the dark side sounds brilliant what a great opportunity for you to understand both sides of the fence there and I guess that's why you're very good at what you do in terms of mediating because you understand both sides I'm going to say some phrases here that might not be the correct ones but when we talk about a lot of tenants you've got things like council tenants DSS universal credit which is obviously the big one how has landlord demand for these types of tenants how's that shifted since you've been doing what you do and why do you think it's shifted um it's had a huge shift actually and it's almost done a 360 from when council tenants originally were the go-to tenant for most landlords because it was a guaranteed income it was reliable it was paid on time, it was administered by the council, they were no problem. And there was a time when actually getting a council house was something people aspired to. It wasn't something that was left to people that couldn't afford the private rented sector or anything. It was actually something, oh, if you've got a council house, you'd kind of made it. And there were good tenants to have. But unfortunately, as anything in society, the thoughts and aspects of people change. And then we had sort of that the stereotypical DSS tenant, council tenant, which would be, it was facilitated a little bit by documentaries and TV shows that would show them in the worst light possible. And unfortunately, no news that is out there that's good news is ever worth listening to. We only want to hear horror stories. And I think that then changed to a stereotypical don't touch council tenants, don't touch DSS tenants. 
And it really has sort of changed the way landlords look at DSS payments as well, which obviously are no longer in existence. It's now a housing benefit or universal credit. What doesn't help is those payments are so below the market rate that you could get out there if you had a working tenant that getting someone on benefits is now probably no longer financially viable for most landlords unless they set it up as an actual business model from the beginning. Well, I know prior to, I think it was April 2020, I would have totally agreed with you. I think it was the government kind of reissued the LHA rate. And what we do in my portfolio is is we stress test everything to an LHA rate. And what we find is actually at that point, we saw LHA rates jump on average by about 13.5%, which was a huge, huge jump. And that brought them very much back in line. It's very area dependent, but across the board, it brought a lot of it back in line to make it quite appealing. Where it didn't was things like shared housing. So if you've got professional tenants in HMOs, there's a huge disparity between them. And that may well be why at the moment in lockdown, but with various other reasons that HMOs aren't performing particularly well. But on the whole, we found that actually some of those LHA rates weren't too bad. I think the problem then came with, well, what happens when someone has to go onto the LHA rate? And I think everyone or the whole industry suddenly, if you hadn't those tenants before, you were thrust into kind of handholding people and tenants weren't used to being in that position either. And that kind of thrust it all on us. And now I think people are a bit more open, like you say, to having those tenants in like they used to, where they felt, oh, it's security of income and all this sort of thing. But I guess there's a little bit of misconception, certainly from my point of view. What is universal credit? What is a council tenant? Am I renting my property to the council or am I renting it to a private person who's then getting housing benefit? and then? Do they get the housing benefit or do I as the landlord get it? How does it all work? Do you want to just clear that up? Yeah, absolutely. Universal credit really was the thing that threw the the spanner in the works, to be honest with you. So I'll come back to that in a moment. So originally what we had was anyone that was basically renting a property from you and they were being paid housing benefit or you as a landlord were getting it directly were classed as council tenants because each individual borough council administered their own housing benefit fund. Now, that was absolutely fine because you nine times out of 10 have your own rent officer that you'd be able to contact, pick up the phone and go, oh, John, where's the money? John would sort it out and it would all be fine. When Universal Credit came in, Universal Credit was basically a bit set up like a pizza and it amalgamated six different types of benefits that were already out there. So job seekers allowance, housing benefit, that sort of thing. So that all came into play. And where the other benefits were all paid at different, different times during the month, So tenants could kind of rob from their housing benefit to pay a bit off here and then top it up with their job seekers allowance. It was all manageable. Universal credit came in and it was one lump sum of money every month, like a wage, and tenants weren't used to it. It was a bit of a mind blow for them. Suddenly they got all this money in the bank account. I don't worry about paying the rent. What's that about? It wasn't the first thing they thought of because unlike other European countries, we're not taught how to budget in schools. We're just expected to just know how to do that. It's not something we know. So universal credit, unlike housing benefit, isn't administered by local councils. And this, again, was where people were getting confused. They thought their local council wasn't paying. It's actually administered by Department of Work and Pension, so DWP. 
and it's all online. So whereas before it was all paper-based, you can have statements from your housing benefit, not with universal credit. It's all on an online journal specific to the tenant, which you don't have access to as a landlord. So again, you don't know how much your tenant's getting paid. Are they getting the right amount? And unlike housing benefit, universal credit doesn't have to be paid directly to the landlord unless the tenant is either requesting it or they are in two months arrears and the landlord is then putting in through a certain process to get that paid. But again, the tenant still has to agree to that to allow that payment to come across. If they say no, then the tenant's pocketing it. The difference again with universal credit to housing benefit is because the clue was in the name with housing, it was benefit for your housing. If you then didn't use it to pay your rent, that was fraud. However, universal credit, if you don't use it to pay your rent, that's just tough. Mm. It's no longer fraud. So there's lots of different things. On paper, universal credit absolutely was a great idea. In practice and administration, unfortunately, not so fantastic. That's a fantastic answer. really clears it up. What happens then if you have a tenant that wants to rent your property and they say they're on universal credit? How easy is it to get that, to ensure that that payment gets into your bank account? And what are some of the things that landlords might want to do? Yeah, so it is possible to get universal credit housing elements paid directly to a landlord from day dot without the tenant being in arrears, without the tenant previously having issues. The first thing is to actually have it as a clause in your tenancy agreement. So it's actually a point of getting that tenancy across the line is if universal credit is paid direct to the landlord. So DWP have to uphold that. So that's something that when they tenant signs up for universal credit, they have to provide all this evidence. And one of them is the tenancy agreement. So it will be in that tenancy agreement that universal credit must be paid from the start of the tenancy. DWP have to honour that. Now, the other way of doing it is as soon as the tenant is signed up to universal credit, the landlord puts in what's called a UC47 form to DWP requesting a direct payment. Now, that's a lengthy time process. The form itself is quite simple. You fill in a few boxes and off you go. But obviously, with how busy DWP have been, they've taken on nearly another million people on benefits through lockdown. So the administration process is quite long, but then they do backdate it from when you put the claim in. So you could get a lump sum. As a portfolio landlord, the other thing you can do is actually contact your um, area manager for universal credit and have them set up a specific account with your properties. You then get treated the same as a housing association or a council. So you get what's called block payments. So if you have several of your tenants that are on universal credit, the DWP will know they're all your tenants and put you on a block payment, which means you won't get the rent every month, but you'll get it every six months as a block payment to cover all of the rent or shorter. Sometimes they do it three month blocks. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. Now, what happens with being, are you always paid in arrears from universal credit in terms of the rent? Or is there any way of getting paid upfront as you would do with most traditional kind of ASTs on a private tenant? Yeah, there isn't, unfortunately. Universal credit, like all benefits, is paid in arrears. If you do want your tenant to pay first month's rent and deposit upfront, then they can apply to their local council and get what's called a discretionary housing payment, just known as a DHP. That usually covers first month's rent and deposit upfront, and that's paid directly from the council. So it's nothing to do with DWP and universal credit, but it is a payment that's available. What would you say landlords should consider when taking on a new tenant that is receiving 
universal credit or the old school housing benefit, which are now being phased out. I don't even know if they're still in existence. Yeah, housing benefit is still in existence, but only for what they call exempt properties. So if you're charity renting out homeless accommodation, women's refuges, that sort of thing, you still get housing benefit for those, but you don't necessarily get it so much now in mainstream renting in private sector or social housing. But the main things for landlords to look out for is exactly the same as you would if you've got a tenant who's employed. Now, someone on benefits is likely to stay on benefits longer and be more consistent than maybe somebody who's in employment as we all know should we get another pandemic we could all lose our jobs go on furlough and and it's all upside down so there's the possibility of looking at affordability for the tenant rather than going through a credit referencing check they're going to fail credit referencing if they've been on benefits for a while have a look at their rent statements from their previous properties. Because as landlords, all we're really worried about is are they going to pay the rent and are they going to look after my property? That's all we're interested in. Now, obviously, at the moment with the pandemic, it's not really ideal, but going to the property they're living in at the moment, see how they live. Speaking to the previous landlord or the current landlord, rather than just doing it via email and a a tick box reference, actually got a feel for the person. I think we're going to be moving away from the standard referencing process that we've got at the moment now after the pandemic with people's lives being so different i think we're going to see a different structure and um, maybe even move away from credit rating altogether hopefully what happens then if someone is getting universal credit and their status changes so maybe they get a new job or they get a a new partner um, who's also on universal credit or their child comes to live with them or their child leaves them What happens then and what should a landlord be concerned about? Okay, so really questions there because all of those impact universal credit and how it's paid. I'll start with employment. If somebody gets a job, it doesn't mean that their benefits are going to stop. Universal credit is basically calculated on how much someone's income is. So if they get a job and they're only working three days a week, for example, and bringing home £500 a month, they'll still get universal credit, but it will be calculated in a way that you get to keep 63 pence of every pound that you earn out of universal credit. So as your wages go up, universal credit comes down until there's no longer universal credit. So unlike housing benefit, which was always a month behind itself because it was a much more of a paper exercise, because DWP gets somebody's income information direct from HMRC in live time, it's updated immediately. So effect on benefits is much quicker, meaning a tenant's got more time to know where they are with their payments and to be able to minimise the risk of being in rent arrears. It's much easier to manage because it's all such in live time. Now, the issue if they have a partner and a part comes to live with them, if that partner is on universal credit, that's fine. They can either carry on having their own individual claims or they can make a joint claim. If they make a joint claim, then their claim in itself will be slightly less because it's less for a couple than it is for two individuals but it will have an impact on the housing element of the universal credit. So landlords need to be aware whether their tenants are actually changing their claim, which means they may get less housing allowance, or whether they're keeping them separate. And then when the tenancy is up for renewal, look at putting the other person on the tenancy agreement, because nine times out of 10, universal credit will only pay rent for the person named on the tenancy agreement, not for somebody living as an occupier. And so... I've had an issue in the past where I've been told that their situation has changed and then Universal Credit haven't 
maybe updated things in time and it's all become a bit of a nightmare and before you know it the tenants in quite considerable arrears what advice would you give to landlords who are seeing issues happening with universal credit and we know there's been quite a few in the press and all that in the past what advice would you give to those landlords once they start to see issues like that come up the first thing is to get some kind of written consent, form of authority from your tenant to speak to Universal Credit directly on their behalf. Because obviously you don't have access to their online journal, you can't really see what's going on. Get that permission and speak to DWP and just find out what's happening. It could be something as simple as they just haven't uploaded a particular piece of information to their journal or they haven't seen a message in their journal because like I say everything is online now so it's if you're not logging online all the time if you don't have internet at home if you're relying on your phone then it may be a case of the tenants aren't just as up to speed as DWP. The one thing to remember though with any form of consent that you get from your tenant DWP have decided it's only valid for that phone call they will not hold it on file. So every time you need to speak to them or email them, you will need a new form of consent. Right. What do you see is in your line of work uh, is the most common issue when it comes to uh, universal credit and tenant landlord disputes? To be perfectly honest with you, I think it's just a lack of understanding completely of how universal credit is administered from both the tenant and the landlord. A lot of landlords don't realise that the housing element is capped to the local housing allowance. So when we heard on the news that it was going to be that £20 uplift, I saw loads of landlords put out Section 13 notices, increase the rent, not realising that if the benefit cap is there, their tenants may not actually get that 20 quid uplift. And they were finding themselves actually putting their tenants in rent arrears by no fault of their own because they were increasing the rent thinking the government would just pay it. Also understanding that this is a payment that is the tenant's money. It isn't the landlord's money. And it's the same as a wage coming in. It's your wage. How you then choose to spend it is up to you. But most of us would have common sense and would like to keep the roof over our head. So it's working with the tenant. That communication has to be there from day one. And I think if you're a landlord on your own, you don't have a letting agent or you don't have a business that's running the properties, then sometimes that can get a little too personal. And you're putting on really different hats. You're trying to be the debt collector. You're trying to be nice. You, then you've got to go around and be the plumber. You're putting on a lot of hats to try and be different people to the one tenant. And sometimes that's where the relationships break down because in one respect, you want to keep a good relationship with your tenants. But in the other respect, if they're not paying you, sometimes that feels personal rather than it just being, right, I have a customer who's not paying their bill, which is where letting agents look at it from a business point of view. Yeah, definitely. And what would you say kind of the, over the last 12 months with pandemic, all these lockdown, certain people's jobs being at risk, in your mind has changed most in the PRS and what should landlords maybe be aware more of now they weren't a year ago? I think the problem with the pandemic is it's put so much on hold for so many aspects of the private rented sector 
but then allowed other stuff to carry on under the radar. So obviously legislation that was due to come into force, that still all came into force, but without the foresight of how is an electrician going to get in and do these EICRs if we're all supposed to be shielding and if the tenant says no, what happens if we get to the 1st of April and they haven't let us in? There didn't seem to be a lot of joined up thinking from the government's point of view. But for landlords, I think it's just having a more open-minded approach to their business and understanding their customer base better knowing what you want out of your business it's all fine well and good saying and absolutely we want to make money out of our business otherwise we wouldn't be in business you know what we're doing it for but it's like you said earlier it's understanding the LHA rate and knowing if that is your base number could it still work I obviously know the answer to this but you hear a lot of landlords saying well should we bother with tenants who are universal credit it seems more trouble than it's worth i mean what would you kind of say to those landlords i can certainly see their point and and like i say because of the way it's administered universal credit has had its own teething problems but the system itself works and landlords get their money a lot quicker with universal credit than they did with housing benefit and any adjustments are a lot quicker but i do think moving forward because of the way universal credit decreases as people's incomes goes up you're going to find a lot of people are employed but on universal credit so you can't really have that blanket nobody on benefits because i think you're going to find for quite a few years to come universal credit is going to be propping up a lot of people that are still employed so go that, i guess that goes back to the previous question of what can landlords do to ensure their security of income and the likelihood of them getting paid is higher or anyone that is on universal credit, whether employed or not. And I guess that's more down to the reference stage and looking at at the tenant as he would any other way. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You've still got to treat the tenant in the same way when you're looking at referencing affordability, etc. But I think we're going to see an increase in landlords taking up products as rent guarantee insurance. And those product providers actually changing the format and accepting people on benefits in regards to will pay out on if they stop paying for example but there is obviously like I say the opportunities for landlords to have the rent paid directly and should the tenant fall into to arrears universal credit also has what's called um, an APA which is basically a payment arrangement that you can have with DWP and they start paying the arrears out of the tenant's benefits so it comes out of the benefits straight to you without it touching the tenant first. Okay that's very interesting. What do you then see as being, actually going back a step, you hear of landlords wanting to rent their house to the council. What's the difference there about renting to the council with the council then paying the rent and providing tenants versus you getting a universal credit tenant on those benefits? Okay, so when you're hearing these phrases rent into the council, that is more of a leasing option with the council. So the council will lease your property for, say, two to five years. They will pay you a guaranteed rent every month, but they will put in the property whoever they want to put in the property. So it's a bit like the rents that we've seen, but obviously with the council, there's a little bit more clout to them. You're going to get your money. And obviously, like I said before, Universal Credit is administered by DWP, Department of Work and Pensions, not the local councils anymore. So when you're working with the local council and leasing your property to them, much more hands off. You're just getting your money every month, depending on the lease agreement 
agreement you may not even be involved in any maintenance it may just be the fact that you get your rent every month and that's it the council then give it back to you in five years time but when you've got a tenant on universal credit you are still responsible for that property you are still the landlord so you are still carrying out repairs you're still doing the chasing of the rent and everything else that comes with it it's just that the rent payment is being administered by dwp instead so what would you say the risks are to renting to the council? I mean, obviously, it could be the way in which it's handed back to you at the end if, 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 it's, uh, if they haven't got the, the most desirable that's in there. Is that the main one? Are there any other kind of traps that landlords need to be careful of? No, I would say that's the main one. And just making sure before you sign the lease that you're reading the small print of how they return the property. You know, there is going to be that standard, we return it in the same condition we received it. Yeah, they've all got those, but they never do. So making sure that they've got a specific clause in there, really detailing how they return that property. And if they don't, do they have a structure in place with regards to you getting some compensation for how your property is returned to you? What do you see as the biggest failing in the PRS currently? And what would your solution be? The biggest failing in the PRS, I've always said, is the amount of legislation that is out there and how antiquated some of it is. I mean, I was dealing with a case the other day where a tenant had given notice to quit. They then didn't leave on the desired date and the landlord's like, what do I do? Okay, so we're going to look back at Distress for Rent Act of 1756, I think it was, because then we can charge the tenant twice the amount of rent daily until they leave bit of a frightener for the tenant but it works we're dealing with acts that are that old if not older then we're having new legislation come in that 2020 2021 and unfortunately the antiquated laws just don't they're just not fit for purpose for the society we have now which is changing so rapidly those laws don't work i would like them literally on a sunday night to just scrap all of the laws put them in the bin put them in the shredder and on Monday morning, just come up with one housing act, and that's what we work from. That's what I would like. Well, we see things like licenses. They're talking about housing HMOs, uh, sorry, MOTs or whatever it is, and, and all these different kind of things you've got to kind of keep up with as a landlord. Even things like when you issue someone with an AST, the different documents that have got to be in there. I mean, for someone who's doing this, who's got a a couple who've moved in together and they each own the house and now one of them wants to rent it out. How do they stand a chance of not falling into a trap here? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. There's so much red tape. And like you say, that's before you've even got the tenants over the threshold. Have you served the gas certificate at the right time in the right place? Have you done the right thing with the holding deposit before they've even become a tenant? There's so much out there at the moment that it's very easy for a new landlord to trip over or a landlord who's seasoned but has just not kept themselves up to date with the literally the minefield of legislation out there. And at what point do you think it's worth taking action to someone that's been in arrears? And when I say taking action, I don't mean sort of court action, but I mean, what point do you need to go, okay, we've got to step in here and, and just make sure things are okay, whether it's them speaking to the tenant or contacting someone like yourself? Very simply, when they're a day late or a penny short, yeah. as simple as that, because as soon as they're a day late, there's a problem. Pick up the phone and find out what's going on, because if you let it go and let it go, and then suddenly they're three months in arrears, that's a lot to try and catch up with. 
and by that point the tenant has already put their head in the sand they're ignoring the problem they're now embarrassed they're scared they're all the other things that come with that the second they are a day late or a penny short pick up the phone and obviously we know that at the moment we've got sort of six months or before you can evict and all these different rules that have come out due to the lockdowns what other options are there for landlords instead of going down the typical section 21 route and then court orders so there are other options obviously at the moment like you say serving notice is six months notice whether you're using a section 21 or a section 8 unless there's huge rent arrears then it's four weeks notice but the court process itself isn't fast at the moment so we're still looking at sort of maybe a year before you get your property back most landlords are now looking at the alternative money collection so money claim online that way they don't have to get the eviction but the money claim is a lot quicker obviously because it's an online service but then of course there's mediation as well because like i say communication normally at that point has broken down between landlord and tenant or letting agent and tenant and sometimes it just needs that third party to come in the middle with fresh eyes to just understand the tenant situation because I think sometimes landlords get very tied up with the fact that where's my rent where's my money which I totally understand because that's why we're all in this business to get money and forget that actually the tenant is having a problem the tenant has got a problem why they can't pay the rent and sometimes a bit of a where's my money approach doesn't necessarily get the outcome that you want and having someone go in to mediate in any way can just be a softer approach pull out the problems sort out the wheat from the chaff get down to the problem and then look at options for example local council funding like I spoke about um, discretionary housing payment earlier sometimes they will pay rent arrears local council also have separate funds that are set up financial inclusion funds prevention of homelessness funds that can be dipped into to help pay towards rent arrears to stop an eviction but also there's just over 2,000 charities across the UK that are available for people to apply to on an individual basis to support them in financial need. And a lot of those will pay towards rent arrears to prevent eviction as well. Fantastic. Going back to what you said at the beginning, traditionally DSS tenants were seen as really secure kind of tenants on secure income. Do you feel that with the current system, universal credit and, and tenants on those benefits will ever be seen kind of maybe as they previously were in terms of a solid covenant or do you see it as more of a of continuing to be a tenant type that maybe rightly or wrongly landlords choose to avoid and are they maybe missing a trick by not targeting them yeah i think landlords are definitely missing a trick it's like with everybody you could have somebody who's employed and they've got a great salary but unfortunately, they get home from work every night, have too much to drink and trash the place. Just because someone's employed doesn't make them stable. Mm. Um, and it's the same just because someone's on benefits, it doesn't make them a bad tenant. We don't necessarily know how someone got to the point of being on benefits. I do think the mindset and the stereotype of people on benefits is going to be harder to change from the outside world. I think there's been far too much negativity in the press, social media, documentaries on channel five and channel four that have really dug into tenants on benefits and the negative elements of it there's never any positive stories in these programs it is going to be something that will unfortunately take a long time to change that's not going to change overnight that's not going to change in a couple of years that may even have to be a generational change the same as it was to go from tenants are your secure option and suddenly they're not i think it's going to take longer to change but landlords just need to understand that these tenants regardless of where their money comes from 
are still people and it's looking at that person as a whole and thinking is that the best customer for my product and at the end of the day it is a business that is a people facing business it isn't a property business it's a people business so is that customer the right for your product and I think that's where landlords are going to have to change their mindset a little bit now absolutely and kind of what you said about affordability it's about the income that they're getting whether that is from part of it is from employment part of it is from universal yeah. credit a lot of landlords might look at and see someone on universal credit and then just assume well if we take them on it's got to be at the lha rate but obviously that's not the case because it's their money and they might have other income topping that up in which case it could still be at that private rental rate but it just depends on what their total income is and, and how how their affordability measures Absolutely. And like I said before, discretionary housing payment is a payment that the each individual council gets from the government every year. They get this purse of money. If they don't spend it, they have to give it back to the government and then they get a new purse every year. So that discretionary housing payment can also pay the top up difference between LHA and what your market rent is if your LHA isn't reaching it. So it's worth considering that as well. And I think landlords need to take the time to get to know their local housing offices again, get to know your rent offices. It's easy to think that because we're all online now, we've lost touch with humanity almost in a way. But if you understand what your local council has got to offer, it's much easier to work with them. And I think it would open up more for what landlords can get out of tenants that are on benefits, whether that's with employment or with support from the council. Absolutely. The whole property management side of things is without doubt my weakest skill set and it's something I've always been fairly terrible at. And I think just the way in which you've cleared up a lot of maybe misnomers for me has been fantastic. Do you just want to give a quick brief of some of the things that you've been doing and how you actually help landlords at the moment and the best way that people can get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. Especially through lockdown. Like I say, my remit has slightly changed and I'm working now more with people with rent arrears. But I've worked with many landlords that have come to me where tenants are in sort of, you know, seven to eight thousand pounds worth of rent arrears. And when I've actually taken the time to understand the tenant, we've drilled down to actually find out what the problem is. Some didn't even know they could apply for benefits. I had one gentleman first lockdown he was a self-employed photographer for motor racing motorsports so of course obviously his industry just shut and he was told by john down the pub that he couldn't apply for benefits because he was self-employed so took the time got him into the letting agent's office literally sat there with him on a computer got him to sign up for universal credit he got payments within the five weeks straight away we put on that journal that it's got to go directly to the landlord so the landlord was immediately getting payments after that application went through i then searched all those grants that i told you about and managed to find three grants which basically worked with people that were freelance photographers and also in the motorsport industry and combined with a discretionary housing payment from the local council we managed to clear all of the arrears off so that that guy was able to literally start from a clean slate and the landlord didn't have to evict him those are the sort of clients that i'm working with and those are the outcomes that i'm having Brilliant. And what's the best way that people can get in contact with you? So they can visit my website, which is literally just gothardrow.com. It's that easy. Or they can drop me an email, which is advice at gothardrow.com. Brilliant. And I'll make sure I put links to both of those in the show notes. Well, Julie, thanks so much for coming on. Like I said, 
I am useless when it comes to this stuff. And it's just so helpful to speak to someone that has got such in-depth knowledge of it, but also sees it from both sides. So there's always three sides to every story. Uh, Absolutely. And the truth. So I think you've come in and, and done a really good job. So thanks so much for that. Thank you. It's been great. That's all for this episode. But please remember to subscribe or follow on your podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review. Subscribing and reviewing really does help to increase our rankings, which in turn helps us to keep getting fantastic guests on the show. And more importantly, it also means that you won't miss an episode. Huge thanks for listening.